Hello, my name is Evie Martin, and I'm the lead pastor here at Platwoods Church. Thank you for being here for worship today. It's hard to overstate the role and importance of money in our everyday lives. We are approaching a state of near constant transactions. With just one click, we can purchase a necessary or unnecessary item to be on our doorstep tomorrow. We can order groceries, we can pay our credit card bill, and we can do it right here, right now in the middle of worship. Yes, I'm on to you. I, I know that you multitask while I'm preaching. That's fine, I would probably do it too. But money is literally at our fingertips in every moment of every day. If you don't have access to your money electronically, you probably have some in your wallet right now. Or you had to spend some just to, to get here today for your internet service or for the device that you're watching on. Every aspect of our lives requires or is connected to money. But we don't really like to talk about it at church. Our money is our money. What we do with it is our business. We don't really want someone telling us how we should value it or what we should do with it, especially if that might be different than what we're already doing. And yet, if you spent any time reading the words of Jesus, or the rest of the Bible for that matter, we know that there's a hefty amount of guidance for our relationship with money. Because how we value money has a direct correlation to the values of our hearts. In this series, If Jesus Had a Dollar, we're exploring three values that Jesus seems to demonstrate and teach about when it comes to our material possessions. Last week, we began with simplicity. We talked about the principle that our hearts follow our treasure. So where we invest or collect our stuff, that's where our hearts will spend a lot of time too. Simplifying our material resources creates space then in our lives to respond and to reorient toward God. Today, we'll talk about trust, and next week we'll conclude with the value of generosity. In 1956, the phrase, in God we trust, was legislated as the official motto of the United States, replacing the de facto one, e pluribus unum, out of many, one. And I suspect most of us are familiar with that phrase, in God we trust, because of where we see it most. And where is that? On our money. And while this has only been officially mandated on our American currency since the 1950s, it has popped up on coins and bills dating all the way back to the 1860s. Does anyone else find it deeply ironic? That the proclamation of where we place our trust is emblazoned upon what is the fuel, the engine, and the vehicle of our nation's economic success, our money. Every transaction, every debt payment, every shopping spree, every student loan, every charitable gift changes hands with the subtle yet profound theological statement, in God we trust. I wonder if Washington, Jefferson, Lincoln, Franklin ever snicker or roll their eyes as they are passed around in the endless American rat race for consumption, do you now, they ask, do you trust in God? <laughs> or do you trust in what my paper face can do for you? Money, our accumulation of it, our pursuit of it, our dependence on it, is a direct impediment to our trust 
in God. The more money we get, the more we begin to believe that it is the solution to our problems. The more we rely on it as our provision, the more we convince ourselves that we are capable of meeting our own needs. The more we have, the less we think we need God. Our love of wealth, when we let it go that far, weakens our faith. Because now we trust that money will take care of us. What need do we have for God? What does it mean to trust? You all remember those team building exercises where you do trust falls or trust walks. I always hated those things. You know, you stand up on a chair with your back to your friends or your colleagues in the room behind you. You cross your arms over your chest and you fall backward, trusting that these people are going to catch you. Usually they do. Trust means that you believe someone will catch you. You will not fall to the floor and break a leg, literally or figuratively. Trust is where we put our confidence. A few years ago, our family visited Niagara Falls, which always takes my breath away. And there's a story of a man named Charles Blondin, who was one of these tightrope daredevils in the late 1850s. He would walk a tightrope across the falls and then augment each consecutive trip with some crazy stunt, and people flocked from all over the place to see him, of course. And as the story goes, on one occasion, he was busy getting the crowd hyped up before he made his walk, and he asked them, do you believe I can cross the falls? Yes, yes, we believe, they all shouted. Do you believe I can cross the falls carrying a man on my back? Yes, yes, we believe, they clamored, getting all riled up. Then who will volunteer? Crickets. (laughs) Eventually, one man did step forward. It was his manager, Harry Colcord. Blondin loaded him up on his back, and off they went across the tightrope. They made it (laughs) to the other side. It's one thing to say we trust in someone, in something. It's entirely another to step out and show it. It's one thing to say we trust in God, but when the question is called, do we really have more trust in the solid ground where our feet are planted, the monetary reality that we can see and count to get us through? Jesus tells a story of a man whose money got in the way of his trust in God. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus is talking to a large crowd of people, and he says, Watch out! Guard yourself against all kinds of greed. After all, one's life isn't determined by one's possessions, even when someone is very wealthy. Then he told them a parable. A certain rich man's land produced a bountiful crop. He said to himself, what will I do? I have no place to store my harvest. Then he thought, here's what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. That's where I'll store all my grain and goods. I'll say to myself, you have stored up plenty of goods, enough for several years. Take it easy. Eat, drink, enjoy yourself. But God said to him, fool, tonight you will die. Now who will get the things that you have prepared for yourself? This is the way it will be for those who hoard things for themselves and aren't rich toward God. 
Here is a man who has built up his security. He has amassed enough stuff that he had to build bigger barns to hold it all. But now he is set. He has everything he needs and then some. He will not wonder where his next meal will come from and can trust what is in his barns to see him through. Except that Jesus starts out by saying, a life is not determined by possessions, even if you have a lot of them. And he ends by saying, fool, tonight you will die. All the stuff in the world can't save you from that. So now what? What good does your money do for you now? The way verse 20 in this text is worded caught my attention as I read what is a familiar story to me again this week. Verse 20 says, Now who will get the things you have prepared for yourself? The man has done the preparing. He has built up his provisions to take care of himself. He's relying on his stuff in his storehouses to take care of himself. His trust for his own future is piled up in really big barns. You know, last week when we talked about simplicity, I said that the principle of simplicity applies across income levels. It's a value we can hold regardless of how much or how little we have. But I think this challenge of trust, trusting in our money more than we trust in God, correlates differently. I think it is much harder to trust God when we have a lot of stuff than it is when we don't have very much. Because we believe that we can meet our own needs out of our own storehouses. People who live closer to the margins have a better understanding, I think, of what it is to place their trust in something or someone bigger than their paycheck or their bank account. You may have experienced both of these realities in different seasons of your life. And if so, I challenge you to reflect on how much you have trusted in God when you have had little and when you have had plenty. Which truly made you feel more secure, more alive, more faithful? Money means something different to each of us. And that impacts what we do with it and the role that it plays in our lives. One approach to the psychology of money identifies four distinct profiles or four purposes of money. And they are love, power, freedom, or security. And the idea is that each one of us leans towards one of these four things as our primary identification with money. So as I walk through these four things for a moment, just think about where you might fall. For some, money is love. Spending money makes you happy. You may buy things for yourself and for others to relieve anxiety or boredom or disappointment or feelings of sadness or anger. Money, spending it, makes you feel loved. For some, money is power. Power being the way that you measure your success. Money is the sign of your ambition and your drive. You use it to have influence over other people, and that can be good or bad. For some, money is freedom. You feel self-sufficient. Money makes you feel self-sufficient and independent and unrestrained. You're free because you have choices rather than feeling trapped. And then for some, money is security. It's protection for the future. It makes you ready for what is unknown. Savings bring you great pleasure and give you a feeling of control. 
Which, which of these, love, power, freedom, or security, best defines the purpose of money for you? I think we can almost quickly and instinctively know which one best describes us when we think about it for just a moment. So, so consider that and sit with it for a moment and reflect on your understanding of money. What purpose does money have for you? Reflect on that some this week. But for right now, I want you just to consider all four of those words again, because each one is a need that we feel in our lives that we trust money will meet. But each one of these words is also a faith word, isn't it? As people trying to follow Jesus, where are these things supposed to come from for us? Where are we supposed to receive our love? Where is our power supposed to come from? Where is freedom really found? And where should our trust in an unknown future be placed? These values that we instinctively place on money are all things that we should be seeking from God. If I am trusting the spending of money to bring me love and fulfillment, I'm, I'm not trusting God to provide that love. If I'm counting on my end of year bonus to bring me a feeling of freedom, I'm not trusting in God to free my heart from what binds it. You, you get the idea. Because we link our money so closely to these gifts that ultimately come from God, our trust gets all muddled and confused. The relationship we have with our money and the purpose or the value that it holds in our lives matters in our faith. It also matters in our families. People around us see how we deal with our money and then they learn from it. And one of the most important things that we can model for our children, for our families, for our friends is the solution to our trust problem. The practice that most substantially increases our trust in God over trust in our resources is generosity. Giving money away breaks us of the habit of building up bigger barns for ourselves. And we'll get to generosity more in depth next week, of course. But two young men in our congregation have a great testimony of their experience learning the value and the place of money in their own lives. So check out the Mason's story. I'm Mark Mason, I'm a senior at Park Hill. I'm Eric Mason, I'm a freshman at LEAD. I think a lot of the way we've learned to use the money we have is mostly just, it's been modeled to us, mostly by our parents, but also just others in the community and the way they give back. Our parents used spend, save, share as a way to teach us to divide our money, so that way we, were, we had some for ourselves, but also set aside some for others. I think it's important to have a sharing aspect of our money because the Bible tells us that we should just share portion of what we have because some people are like less fortunate. I also think it's just been something that we've been taught uh, growing up because in general some people are less fortunate. I get to go to a lead school because uh, many people in our community voted and gave their money to create a new learning experience. I see other people's gener uh, generosity and it makes me want to be generous as well. Trust certainly plays a major factor. Back at our old church in Chicago, they presented us this opportunity with this organization called Heifer International. What they did was they gave animals who would produce things like eggs or wool to less fortunate families in other countries, so that way they would have a steady stream of income. And 
As a four-year-old, I was apparently super inspired by that and super moved. So I took everything that I had in my little piggy bank and just gave it to them. I just trusted in them that they would do something good with the money and help a lot of people. What I love in their story is that they not only trusted that their money would be put to good use for people who do not have enough, but also their childlike trust that they themselves would have enough. Isn't this one of our biggest obstacles with trusting God instead of our money? We're afraid if we give some of it or all of it away, if we don't keep it all for ourselves, there may not be enough. Children are so much better at trusting that there will be enough. The Masons had no trouble trusting that if they gave away their entire piggy bank of cash, they would still be cared for. They didn't doubt for a second that after depleting their monetary resources, they would still have dinner to eat that night. The option of generosity was more compelling to them than the worry that they would not have what they needed. Well, yeah, but they had their parents to make sure they have what they need, you might be saying. And yes, that's exactly right. They trusted that their parents would provide for them. They trusted that without flinching. Do we not have a heavenly parent whose unending promise to us is to provide? My dad has told me the story of a Sunday in church when my little brother was around five years old. It was time for the offering and the plate was coming down the row. And my dad watched my brother empty his pockets, quarters and dimes and nickels emerging along with lint and buttons. He had apparently loaded up the entire contents of his piggy bank that morning before coming to church. In a moment of surprise, my dad started to reach over to correct him and help him put some of the money back, not wanting him to give up all of his money. But he stopped himself. His words caught right in his throat as it hit him. He could replenish my brother's entire life savings with the money he had in his wallet that morning. It was less than $10. And the beautiful truth dawned on him in that moment how easy it must be for God, our Heavenly Father, to cover our needs, to replenish our resources when we have joyfully given them away. This is not an easy thing to begin unwinding the trust that we have placed in our storehouses, in our bank accounts, in our own capacity to provide for ourselves. And it's not an invitation to suddenly become frivolous or reckless with your excess. But it is an opportunity for an examination of our relationship with money. What are we trusting it for? And what is that costing us in our relationship with God? In Paul's letter to Timothy, I feel like he was absolutely preaching to 21st century Americans and not 1st century Ephesus, but he writes, Tell people who are rich at this time not to become egotistical and not to place their hope on their finances, which are uncertain. Instead, they need to hope in God, who richly provides everything for our enjoyment. The challenge to us is clear. 
to put our trust where it belongs, in God. And that means decreasing the trust we place in our own resources. They are, at the end of it all, uncertain. No matter how certain we might feel about them. So what does that look like in real life? It's, it's one thing to read it in the Bible. It's another to reprogram our hearts. It's probably a little different for each one of us, but if we go back to Luke chapter 12 for a moment, Jesus wraps up that section of scripture about material possessions with what might be a familiar verse. Don't chase after what you will eat and what you will drink. Stop worrying. Stop worrying. Instead, desire God's kingdom. And these things will be given to you as well. Our trust becomes properly aligned when we are looking for God's kingdom and not for our own security or power or fun. When we start seeking compassion in the world, when we focus on the places and people where love abounds, when we desire the justice that God desires for all people, these things will start to crowd out our worries and our fears of not having enough. When we spend time with people who do not live in abundance and must rely on God and on community for daily bread, we learn what trusting in God looks like. When we are brave enough to let go of something that we're convinced we need to survive, we find that God knows our needs even better than we do. When we stop worrying, even for a moment, we give God the chance to show us just how trustworthy God is, the one who made us, who saves us, and who stays with us always. Will you pray with me? God, our provider, author of love, power, freedom, and future, you are all that we need. Even as we pray those words, open our hearts and our minds to believe them. Reveal yourself to us, to witness your power and provision. Give us the strength to loosen our grasp on our earthly safety nets and to find our security in your arms. Author of creation, you are good. Amen.